As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. And welcome to Plotting Through the Presidents, where we dig into lesser-known stories from early American history with research and irreverence. Irreverence. I'm Howard Dory. Which is different than deliverance. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) Oh, I'm Jess Dory. Today? Are we moving on from possums? Uh, well, that's no, all I need to is, know. We do have a little bit more about Billy Possum. Really? Um, I, I dug up. No. Oh, good. Yeah. I never, I mean, it doesn't seem like the concept has left our family because you decided to give our children a stuffed possum despite the fact that I wouldn't want it in the house. I did not and give despite, our children a stuffed possum. Despite the fact that they're overflowing with stuffed animals. I gave you. A stuffed possum. But who was it for, really? (laughs) You thought I was going to sleep with it at night? (laughs) You know. Is that only on the patron page? That's where I put it so far. Okay, so far there is a video of me opening a delightful possum present. Yes. I'm just shaking my head. (laughs) Can't believe you did that. Today we've got an interview with Peter Shea, author of In the Arena, a book about presidential hopefuls and the way that they're remembered. Oh. And one of those presidential hopefuls is a man named William Jennings Bryan. Unless you're really into history, you probably never heard of him. No. I mean, no. He ran not once, not twice, but three times for president. Poor guy. <laughs> and he was talked about in his time... Like he was in league with Washington or Jefferson or Jackson or Lincoln. He was a big deal. Look how quickly we forget. Right? The underdog. (laughs) The first time that I heard about William Jennings Bryan was from a theory about the book, The Wizard of Oz. Oh, wow. Look how it connects to your favorite things. You know, there's this idea that The Wizard of Oz, which was published in 1900, it wasn't just a children's story. Author L. Frank Baum was actually crafting a parable about the populist movement at the time, with different aspects of the book symbolizing different parts of populism in the 1890s, and that William Jennings Bryan was represented by the character of the Cowardly Lion. Oh, wow. Okay. I think you could take The Wizard of Oz and really relate it and use it as a metaphor for anything you want to. In fact, I'm willing to go back to college and write a paper on that. You know what? You absolutely could. And I think people have applied many different things to it. Oh, so this is not a new idea that I had? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's new to you. Okay. Thanks a lot. Moving yeah. on. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about where this particular idea came from. And we're going to see how it holds up to scrutiny. But full disclosure, I'm maybe a little biased when it comes to The Wizard of Oz. Because your mom, like, hand-sewed your outfit for the convention? How dare you? (laughs) What do you mean, how dare me? Isn't that true? (laughs) I I speak of truths. That is not a lie at all. Um, (laughs) And and you wore it. Yes, it was, okay. Happily. (laughs) 
What were you? It was it was one you, of my. It looked like a little pioneer, but it, I think you were a Munchkin. I was a Munchkin named Button Bright. Oh, he had a name. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was it's one adorable. Of, <laughs> it was one of my favorite movies as a kid, and I also love the books. When I was, I think, nine years old, I saw an ad in the back of one of the Oz books for the International Wizard of Oz Club. Oh my gosh! And your little brain like lit up. It did. It did. It had an address that you could write to for more information. Did you write to the address? I did. I joined (laughs) immediately. How old were you? I think I was about nine. Oh my gosh. Did you know how to address an envelope? Uh, Yeah. Back then, we didn't have the internet, so we just addressed envelopes all day. Okay. Yeah. And soon, I found out that there was a convention coming up just a couple of hours away. The Osmopolitan Convention. So I really wanted to go, (laughs) and my mom took me. And, I mean, it was a magical weekend with some of the kindest, friendliest people who just made us feel like family. Oh. Yeah. And my dad had died a couple of years before that. So it was, it was just me and my mom, and it was something that we really bonded over together. And we went to conventions, like, annually for years. What was one of your favorite things that you saw well, at a convention? Well, I got to meet some of the munchkins from the movie. Oh, really? Yeah, like the coroner. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, very cool it's people. Most- likely surely dead <laughs> that, that person <laughs> exactly I, okay. I don't believe it was his actual voice used in the movie but <laughs> okay it was him yeah uh there were costume contests like you mentioned mm-hmm. um there were there were auctions with like antiquarian books and presentations and i loved it um so i have really fond memories associated with the wizard of oz but i'm gonna try not to be biased here uh good luck yeah <laughs> So the idea that this wasn't just a children's book, but it was actually a political allegory in disguise, it all goes back to one man, a high school teacher in Mount Vernon, New York, named Henry M. Littlefield. In 1964, 64 years after the book's publication, this guy wrote an article for the American Quarterly called The Wizard of Oz, Parable on Populism, where he called The Wizard of Oz a subtle parable or political allegory for the populist movement, which he believed that Baum supported. But this is 64 years later. Yes, yes. So over time, this theory turned into sort of like a secret, hey, did you know that thing you thought was just a fun story? Well, it's not. It's actually a secret code about the populist movement in the 1890s. Wow. How is it this movie has so many secrets attached it's just so it broods so many like did you know dark side of the moon plays up to Mm -hmm. wizard of oz did you know all these like myths about deaths and accidents and like what about this movie breeds so many of these it's almost like conspiracy theories it was for a long time the most watched movie in the world everybody knew it everybody saw it they grew up with it It was just part of their lives. So there were lots of references to it. Wow. More popular than like the Christmas story? A hundred percent. I'm kidding. At this point, it might be like the third most watched movie ever. Wow. Yeah. So it turned into this big like kind of cool secret thing. And people like to be let in on secrets, especially about stuff that they're familiar with looking at in a counterintuitive way. Yeah. In the popular media. Exactly. Yeah. So it it like devolved into a Da Vinci Code of stretching to make these connections. So let's go. I like that. (laughs) Thanks. Let's go through some of the big parts of The Wizard of Oz, the book that Littlefield used as evidence. And some other folks, they jumped in on his theory too later and they added their own stuff. But let's look at some of that. 
Okay, sounds good. So um, first I should say that Kansas, it was a significant part of the populist movement in the 1890s. There were lots of farmers suffering due to drought and a depression. It was dry and gray, and that matches up pretty well with the book. Yeah. But let's look at the characters, okay? okay? Starting with Dorothy. Yeah. What did Littlefield say that she represents? Mm. Nothing interesting. <laughs> the everyday American. Oh, As okay. they want to see themselves. So lost, confused. <laughs> Smart, plucky, <laughs> thinking of others. Um, Midwestern, which we all strive to be. <laughs> um. Okay, yeah, but that's that's Dorothy, which, you know, I'm already disappointed by this theory. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Well, what about Toto? Jeez, even Toto has a role in this? I don't know if it was Littlefield or someone later that came up with a Toto theory. Toto is short for teetotaler, and he represents the movement to make alcohol illegal. Oh, wow. The only connection seems to be his name and the fact that he goes along with the group in the same way that teetotalers apparently just went along with populism. But he was very much connected to the all-around American Dorothy. I mean, they were, they went hand in hand. They did, they did. Yeah. I mean, Toto's the reason she wasn't, you know, she was looking for Toto, right, when the hurricane came. The, the tornado, yeah. Tor- the sorry, the tornado. Yeah. Yeah, that's the same in the book, too. Yeah, so Toto's kind of the catalyst for getting lost, getting separated, things not quite going. Yeah, I don't see... Is this all the same as the total? Not at all. I don't see any way that you can connect the teetotalers to Toto. Okay. All right. So the scarecrow represents Kansas farmers who were accused of ignorance. But Bomb Scarecrow is actually smart, not not from Kansas, but I guess scarecrows are on farms, so so whatever. I don't know. Well, yeah, he wasn't actually ignorant no he just thought he was yeah which you know makes you smarter than not what he was smart enough to no he wanted to be smarter yeah exactly because dumb people think they're smart (laughs) that's like the dunning kruger effect i think they call it where people overestimate their abilities in certain things and i think i think i said this in a pod before that kruger was one of my professors at the university of illinois in psychology did you say kruger yeah as in freddy (laughs) not freddy Justin. Justin Kruger. Justin Kruger. Freddie's little brother went into psychology. Yeah, that's an even scarier name, Justin Kruger. I could could kill children or or I could go into psychology and do even more damage. Oh, my gosh. No. All right, so Littlefield's big one is the Tin Man or Tin Woodman. Mm -hmm. So in the book, the Tin Woodman used to be a regular human or munchkin. Um, Wait, the Tin Woodman was a munchkin? Yeah, because he was from Munchkin Land. And, and yeah. then he turned into a Tin Woodman? Yes. Because, a tall one? <laughs> you know, I don't like, know. I don't the height doesn't make so much sense. But just because he lived in the area. You know, maybe when he became tin, he became taller. That can happen. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'll keep that in mind. Well, in the book, um, so he was put under a spell by the Wicked Witch of the East that made him cut off every part of his body one by one. And one by one, he had those parts replaced by tin. That's gruesome. Until he was totally made of tin. It is gruesome, but I'm thinking like, if somehow like both my legs were cut off and I I had to replace them with tin, I would go for um, longer legs made of tin. Okay. That would be the only, that would be the bright side. (laughs) But that's discriminatory. 
<laughs> against who? It's it's my choice. The Munchkins. Well, like you're saying, longer legs are better legs. I I'm not necessarily saying that. Sounded like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know. One by one, he had those parts replaced by tin until he was totally made of tin. So Littlefield says, and this is a quote, In this way, Eastern witchcraft dehumanized a simple laborer so that the faster and better he worked, the more quickly he became a kind of machine. Here is a populist view of evil Eastern influences on honest labor, which could hardly be more pointed. Wow, I just feel like all of this is stretching a little bit. (laughs) Right, yeah. So far, anyway. Yeah, I would tend to agree. And he says that the Tin Man being rusted is an obvious parallel to Eastern workers after the Depression of 1893. Clearly. Clearly. And if the Wicked Witch of the East is the Eastern industrialist, then the Wicked Witch of the West represents the West. Rugged, full of threats like Native Americans, supposedly the winged monkeys, and in a dangerous drought that can only be cured by... Bubbles. Water. Okay. (laughs) Water. This is the Wicked Witch of the West. Okay. Got it. She kills the Wicked Witch of the East when she arrives. Okay. And And the West represents drought. And then she's melted by water. Yeah. It's all a stretch. It's reaching. It's a bit of a stretch. But if you don't look at the story too closely, maybe this sounds good. The bumbling old wizard, Littlefield says, might be any president from Grant to McKinley. Which is like, pick one, Littlefield. You know, you're writing writing an essay here. Um, And he says that the way that he appears to each of them in different forms, because in the book, it's different than the movie. He appears as an enormous head to Dorothy, but to the scarecrow, he's a delicate fairy. To the tin man, he's a horrible beast. Jeez, and why? To, I don't know. And to the lion, he's a ball of fire. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Littlefield says that that represents the way that presidents are able to be everything to everybody. I don't know. It's just so arbitrary, the way he's analyzing it. I'm, I'm with you. But here we come to the cowardly lion, who Littlefield says specifically represents one particular person, William Jennings Bryan. Now, let me tell you about this guy, okay? Okay. He is so little known today. And that would be shocking to people at the time because he was looked at as this great man. But without any courage. No. No, we'll get to that. Okay. So Brian, he's just trying to correlate him to the lion. Oh, you know, you could hurt yourself trying. (laughs) Um, So Brian ran for president three times. He lost to William McKinley. Mm -hmm. And William McKinley, he's the one who was assassinated. And that's how Teddy Roosevelt became president. Okay. Then Brian lost to Teddy Roosevelt. Mm. Then Brian lost to Roosevelt's handpicked successor, William Howard Taft. But to think, you know, it could have been Brian hunting bear in Mississippi and eating possum in Georgia. <laughs> but it wasn't meant to be. No. So, so how is this correlated to the lion? We're not there yet. Oh, God. Okay. So I wanted to know a little bit more about Brian's personality. Uh, so you could get a sense of the man. Mm-hmm. I found a newspaper from 1896 that had the headline, Characteristics of William Jennings Bryan. <laughs> just a exa- list of them. That's exactly what you were looking for. That's exactly. Do you want to hear some of them? Sure. All right. Doesn't drink. Doesn't smoke. Doesn't chew. Doesn't swear. This is like one of those Facebook, like, <laughs> never have I ever. Doesn't play cards. 
Doesn't play billiards. Doesn't ride the bicycle. Has never gone skydiving. Does not have a tattoo. Does not... <laughs> doesn't know what it is to be revengeful. Oh, wow. He's a heart of gold. How do you determine that? I don't know. They must have. They must have. This must have been done by uh, Justin Kruger. <laughs> Justin, you think? <laughs> a social psychology experiment? I mean, apparently. I'm just thinking it was a, like a, some kind of press conference. and like, uh, Mr. Brian, Mr. Brian, do you know what it is to be revengeful? No, I do not. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but all these things sound good. But then this list also has like, gets an idea and takes it for granted that he's right. What? Has been thoroughly spoiled by admiration, and that he believes he knows all there is to know. Those are those are odd additions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Most of the and stuff it turned quickly. Yeah, he's always ready for an argument. <laughs> but there's there's other good stuff like he goes to church regularly. He's devoted to his wife. He's happy in his home life. These things that are supposed to be good, but then it, it's a mixed bag. So I don't know. He I don't know his, who's writing. He this. got his child the Billy Possum. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So. Brian was a political force. He rose to fame almost instantly during one speech at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 1896. He wasn't expected to be the nominee, but he gave that speech and it fired people up so much that they were like, this guy needs to be president. I love him. The topic about... Well, apparently not. <laughs> right? <laughs> not enough people. Not yet. enough. The topic of that speech directly ties into the populist movement and its supposed representation in The Wizard of Oz. So Brian gave what's called his Cross of Gold speech, and it became one of the most famous speeches in American history. And it's all about well, how... Well, why don't I know of it? I, you know... One of the most famous speeches in American history? I'm sorry. I could name like three other famous speeches. That is not on my top three of speeches to know. Um, we'll get into it a little bit later, why Brian is not remembered well anymore. Okay. I want you to hear how he ended this rousing speech. This is what he said that made people go nuts. If they dare to come out in the open field and defend the gold standard as a good thing, we shall fight them to the uttermost. Having behind us the producing masses of the nation and the world, having behind us the commercial interests and the laboring interests and all the toiling masses, we shall answer their demands for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor, the crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Goodness. People lost their shit. They <laughs> cheered. They threw their coats in the air. Wow. Which seems risky. You need a, you need a coat. You yeah, this was Chicago. You need a good coat. You often need a coat in Chicago. <laughs> he became an instant rock star for this. The way that the press talked about him, the way that the people there just started following him like the Pied Piper, like to his hotel room. And they were outside his balcony, basically oh like begging him to speak more. And then the men in black came with their, <laughs> their memory sticks. Yeah. <laughs> you will not remember him. That's what happened to everyone. I bet if you're like me, you have some questions about the gold standard and why Brian's idea was so popular or populist. I guess. <laughs> I hope you have some questions because I went to someone who knows more about money than I do. Our our old friend, Martin Smith. Oh, Marty. Yes. Our full conversation we're going to make available to patrons. But here now, I want to share a bit with you where he tries to make me understand what the hell 
William Jennings Bryan was talking what about. What does Marty do? Like, why does he know about this? He works in finance. So therefore, he knows the difference between gold and silver? Like, That's basically it. <laughs> I reached out to him. I, I let him know what I was looking for. He did a little bit of research. Oh, that's nice of him. Yeah. You want to hear our little snippet? <laughs> snippet away. All right. All right, Marty, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah. Doing really well. We go way back. Way, like, like embarrassingly far back. It's true. So I was curious about William Jennings Bryan, and I'm reading about him. And I read about this cross of gold speech and something called the bimetallic standard or bimetallism, which I understand it has something to do with the value of silver and gold. What I don't understand and I'm hoping you can help me understand is what that really means and why people cared. If you have any insight on bimetallism. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> why? Uh, yes, I do. I can at least help in like a very basic way. So I think, well, let me start way, way, way back. Like, what is money? Like, how do you think about money? So money fundamentally is like a receipt for work that you did. You know, it used to be you do work, grow your crops, you had to go trade them for the work that somebody did to make a rocking chair. And hopefully they needed the crops and you need the rocking chair and you could trade. So money is just a receipt for the work that you did. You sell the crops, you get that receipt, you can take that receipt, and then you can go give it to somebody else. They now have a receipt for their work. So you're kind of exchanging these units of work uh, that, that's stored in the money. So in order for that system to work, you need to make sure that the receipt that you got is still going to be valuable when you need it. So we've gone through like several iterations of money, but back in back in the day, it was you know backed by gold, and U.S. had the gold standard. So you've got your receipts. You're saying, okay, I've got this receipt, but how do I know that this is good? Uh, well, the answer is uh, the government is telling you it's good, and the government's telling you it's good because it's backed by gold. So. Whatever happened, you basically traded your work for a, for a lump of gold. Now, when they say it's backed by gold, does that mean that the government has that amount of gold stored somewhere that they could make good on? Yeah, it was supposed to. It was supposed to. And actually, the government actually wasn't the one who was affirming that there was gold. For a long while, it was the banks themselves. Okay. So you would have like gold receipts for banks in New York. And those would be worth more than gold receipts for banks out in the wilderness, or they would call they were called wildcat banks, hmm. because uh, basically you couldn't go to to audit the bank. The banks in New York were audited all the time for how many gold receipts they were writing, and uh, so you knew pretty darn sure that if you went to go get your gold, the bank had it. Nice. Whereas you'd have these other banks that would be opened up out in the wilderness that the auditors couldn't get to. So you know kind of questionable like they could they could trade like 70 cents on the dollar for for those okay but once the money was federalized which i think by the time of uh brian it was uh it was the government that was behind it and it was like the gold that the government had was supposed to to back it up so this is actually like where the whole cross of gold thing comes from because like at the time the u.s was going through a depression so things were not great economically and the problem with the gold standard is that your money is based on gold and that's it so if you need more money you'd better have more gold and if you don't have more gold 
the money is going to stay the same size. So people who advocate for hard hard monetary system, they like this feature. They think that this is good. Uh, you know, looking at today where we're having debates about trillion dollar, like thirty trillion dollar debt ceilings, that's kind of the the flip side where you know we're trying to maintain through contract the stability of our money. But if it's tied to gold, it's however much gold you have is how much money you have. So the problem though was that uh, when the economy is bad, you had a whole bunch of people who had uh, you know, we were expanding as a country, new people had taken out loans for farms. And so you have a whole bunch of people with mortgages and then you've got, uh, an economic downturn and then your money supply is staying the same size. So, you know, in, in a deflationary type environment, it means that as time goes on, you're dollar can buy more or your your gold can buy more but it also means for all the people who borrowed money it's getting harder and harder to pay your money back so the people who owed are watching their debt relatively get bigger compared to their earnings and the people who have money uh can just sit on it and it gets more valuable so uh, i think in this speech he talks about you know rewarding the people who sit on capital and the reason they're being rewarded is that if it just appreciates for doing nothing, you actually don't have to produce any value or you don't have to go out and participate in the economy to get richer. You just have to already have gold and you'll just get richer by sitting on it. So bimetallism is instead of just relying on a lump of gold, you're saying, well, gold is too scarce and we don't have enough and we can't increase the supply. If we add silver in there, we have a lot more silver, we can get more silver, and we can increase the money supply, bring in a little bit of inflation, help the people that are in debt, and then make sure that it's uh, not as profitable for people to just sit on their cash. So by opening up the standard to both gold and silver, the the aim, I think, was to, to basically do what we did like in 2008, which is just like print a bunch of money to try and get inflation up and try to get things stimulated and try to get the economy back flowing again. So this was like early uh, stimulus type um, economics. And for people who are in a recession with, uh, with high unemployment, this is like definitely a populist view that's, that people are going to get behind. Okay. Uh, I think what the real focus was, was trying to bring some ease for the people who were hurting, which is why I think it resonated a lot with people at the time. I loved hearing Marty. Yes. It is really interesting how he compared it to modern day stimulus. Yeah. Stimulus and the gold situation. It sounds like it just lessened the middle class. You yeah, know what I mean? It like wasn't pe- good. Poor people got poor and rich people got richer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so basically, William Jennings Bryan, by advocating the free coinage of silver, he was offering relief to the people who needed it giving them a chance to participate in the economy. And they loved him enough to make him their nominee mm-hmm. three times. <laughs> but why um, wouldn't they vote for him then? You know, they did, but not everybody else did. <laughs> the stalkers who followed him back to <laughs> yes. his apartment. They voted for him. Yeah. To be fair, though, in that first convention, um, the other guy up for the Democratic nomination was Bland. Literally, his name was Richard P. Bland. He also supported bimetallism, and he loved silver so much <laughs> that they called him silver dick oh that's unfortunate it's unfortunate i mean we could have had a president called silver dick (laughs) 
It doesn't sound like we could have. <laughs> no, no. It does not sound like it was going in that direction. Probably not. Probably not. Now, if you told me that the Tin Man was a metaphor for Silver Dick, then I'd be ready to hear you out. I would say, tell me more. I'd still say it's a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. But by the way, okay, we're supposed to believe that yellow bricks, according to Littlefield, those represent the gold standard. But the Tin Man, the silver-colored Tin Man, he doesn't represent silver. He represents the Eastern industrial workers who were <laughs> actually supporting the gold standard. Well, maybe he represents both, Howard. Uh, you know, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> this is what upsets me. Because The Wizard of Oz, it's such a well-crafted, easy-to-follow story. Mm-hmm. But the allegorical version of it is a mess. <laughs> Speaking of messes. Maybe you're wondering, what the hell does William Jennings Bryan have to do with the Cowardly Lion? I'm still waiting for that, yes. The answer is, not much. (laughs) Littlefield's only reason to compare the Cowardly Lion with William Jennings Bryan is because when the lion first encounters the group, he strikes at the Tin Man with his claws, but his claws, quote, could make no impression on the tin. Instead, scratching the Tin Man... It made a cold shiver run down the lion's back, and it nearly blunted his claws. Littlefield says that's because Brian couldn't get support from Eastern workers because they were pressured into voting for McKinley and gold by their employers. Was this paper published? This was published in the American Quarterly in 1964. Made a big splash. This was published. This was published. This sounds like the ranting of like a drunk person, honestly. <laughs> he comes across as a nice man in the essay, and he's very, he, he does explicitly say that the parable part of The Wizard of Oz is always in the minor key, and that L. Frank Baum willingly abandons it whenever it gets in the way of the story, which to me is just undercutting your entire point to be like, this is really a parable, sometimes not really. I feel like, you know, things like this, you really have to jump in with both feet. You know, if you have an argument, you have to go full fledged. Yeah, I agree. If you got a good argument. This might be and this is a little bit like that. And it's just so noncommittal. And I mean, wasn't he worried about sounding like he was reaching (laughs) and that it wasn't really a parody? And because that's what it sounds like to me. I think that the reason it was embraced by some folks that's exactly what I'm trying to ask you. Thank you for wording that so eloquently. <laughs> it's Why was this embraced by his fellow man um, and women? I believe that and people children and trying and to possums. teach history to kids use this as a way to make them care at all about learning about this time period. So this isn't really a parody. This is a way to teach children about politics. That's the only good way to look at it. The weirdest thing about saying that the Cowardly Lion is some kind of stand-in for William Jennings Bryan is that, okay, the most obvious attribute of the lion, that he's cowardly, or really that he thinks he's a coward because he experiences fear, that doesn't fit at all with Bryan. It's a terrible metaphor. I don't see how their personalities match. I don't I don't see it at all. I'm angry that the way I first heard the name William Jennings Bryan was because of this theory, because it's a disservice to both the book and to William Jennings Bryan. Are you are you hurt by this? I'm I'm a little hurt. I'm you know, you talking to you now is it's making me angrier. About I can it. tell. Yeah. Yeah. And the lion, he doesn't have anything to do with bimetallism, which is Brian's no, well, big when thing. his claws hit the metal. Oh, yeah, that was for Eastern work. 
Sorry yeah, for Eastern workers. He's not even bimetal curious. <laughs> the bimetallic standard, it's supposedly represented in the book by Dorothy's silver slippers, which are not ruby. In the book, they're silver. Um, so her silver slippers represent silver. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm with you on that All one. Right. On top of the you gold. Know yeah. Uh, yes. Walking on top of the gold. On top of the gold. So it's together, the silver slippers go along with the yellow brick road to the Emerald City, which is green. And that represents all money. money. Yes. So that now was, we're now we're connecting uh, to Pink but Floyd. Was money really um, green back then? I believe it they were wasn't. called greenbacks. So there, it was associated with the color green, if I'm not mistaken. Money. Yeah, but in the book, the Emerald City isn't really green. The wizard just makes everyone wear these green tinted glasses, so it all looks green. Mm, is that where the term rose-colored glasses came from? I think rose-tinted glasses came before that. Oh, okay. But it's the same idea. Right. Everyone's and, blinded. Yeah, which that might make you think, hey. By the green. Everyone's blinded by money. Yes. That, that I can get behind. Yes. This this might make you think, hey, does that say something about leaders manipulating people? And isn't that kind of a political idea? To which I say, yes, Absolutely. I wouldn't write off the book by saying it's just a children's story. Like Baum was some timeless sage who never even read a newspaper. What even is politics? Because he edited a newspaper. He wrote a ton of editorials about current events. And the book does have some basic political aspects in that you've got people in power being deposed and exposed by the little people. Well, and exploiting little people. Yeah. Not just little people, but like the the more vulnerable characters yeah and one thing you can say about the wizard he got shit done like he's the <laughs> he reason did help them in the end <laughs> well even before that he's the reason they built the emerald city he built the yellow brick road or he got that built infrastructure like as a leader yeah but meanwhile everyone's blinded i suppose but so a lot of like them are probably happy <laughs> blind and happy but all that to me it seems like a universal concept that goes beyond just a specific movement when Baum was interested in lampooning a specific political movement, he made it obvious. Like in his first sequel, The Marvelous Land of Oz, there's a major storyline about a woman named General Ginger who's leading an army of women. And at one point, they force all the husbands in the Emerald City to do domestic duties. Interesting. It's definitely something the audiences at the time, they would see that um, it was making a political fun. point. Yeah, it was poking fun at the suffragist movement at the time. And by the way, Baum supported suffragism. His mother-in-law, Matilda Joslyn Gage, worked right alongside Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth wow. Cady Stanton for women's rights. Amazing. This was part of his life, too. Yeah. yeah. And that's what it was. It was obvious. It wasn't some hidden agenda so secret that no one said anything about it for more than 60 years. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. We didn't grow up immersed in the history of the populist movement and William Jennings Bryan. No, we did not. That's not part of our lives today in the 1990s or whatever decade this is. No. A lot of shit has gone down in our lifetime, but... Um, not that. Not that. Not but that. <laughs> people in 1900, when this book was published, they were intimately familiar with the issues of the day and the populist movement, bimetallism, William Jennings Bryan. And if The Wizard of Oz was designed as a populist parable, they would have picked up on those things. Really fast. But there doesn't seem to be any evidence that they did. No one picked up on the parable at the time, and not because the book somehow flew under the radar. No. The book was a huge success, highly praised for its delightful humor, rare philosophy, and beautiful pictures. 
Yeah, these things would have been obvious to the people living that life. Yes. And they weren't until this guy comes along 65 years later or whatever yes. it was. And within two years, Baum wrote a theatrical version that was phenomenally successful on Broadway and around the country. Um, there was a separate joke writer that was brought in to add some current event references to that. But even then, no one talked about the play or the book being an allegory for politics at the time, which either means it's a shitty parable because who is it for if your audience isn't picking up on it? Or I don't maybe, need to hear the second one. It's the first one. <laughs> <laughs> They're kind of the same. Maybe it's not a parable at all, and he just wrote it to entertain children, which is what he specifically said. In his author's note, L. Frank Baum says, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz was written solely to pleasure children of today. Which is weird that you have to call that out in a children's book, which some <laughs> folks have pointed out as evidence that maybe he was writing it as more than that. But, rewind again, in context... It makes more sense because he was saying that he was creating a modernized fairy tale, an entertaining wonder tale that unlike old time fairy tales like the Brothers Grimm or Hans Christian Andersen, Baum was eliminating all the horrible and blood curdling incident devised by their authors to point a fearsome moral to each tale. Well, there's a moral to this tale, but it's not a political one. And it's not a it's not a fearsome one. No. It's not like, don't go in the woods or the monster will kill you. <laughs> um, which is funny because there are monsters that do get killed in the woods. There's a lot of killing for not being blood curdling at all. But you know. You know. You know. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Like Chekhov said, if you have an axe, you're going to have to kill a lot of things by the third act. If you're a woodsman. Act. Yes. <laughs> if you're a wood, yeah. You know. That's lost its limbs. <laughs> right? Right. There's been some some violence in your life. There's been a lot of violence. And <laughs> that, you know, that trauma doesn't just go away. <laughs> you know, you got to find healthy ways to act out. Killing creatures that are attacking you that were sent by the Wicked Witch, that's a healthy way to act out that aggression. It's because it's self-defense. It is. It is. Um, <laughs> historian Michael Patrick Hearn, he wrote a letter to the editor of the New York Times in 1992 responding to an article that talked about the populist parable theory. And he pointed out some of the problems in Littlefield's essay. Some. <laughs> well, Baum wasn't actually a supporter of Brian, like Littlefield <laughs> claimed. Uh-huh. Baum actually wrote a poem supporting McKinley and the gold standard. Mm, wow. So it's hard to picture. Interesting. Yeah. It's hard to picture a guy who supports the gold standard writing a populist satire where silver shoes actually save the day. <laughs> Hearn wrote, Baum had little faith in politicians considering most of them to be, like the Wizard of Oz, humbugs. He wrote the Wizard of Oz to entertain children, not to lecture them about politics. So Hearn wrote this editorial. And then Littlefield, like oh 30 years after did he, he wrote explode? his thing. He did not. What did he do? Did he go, you're right. <laughs> Truth, man. <laughs> you know, he, he wrote in saying that he was flattered that this historian mentioned him as the origin of this theory. Because the article that was written before apparently didn't even mention who came up with the theory. Um, and he acknowledged that there was no factual basis for the claims in his essay. Well, good for him. Yes. Or the idea that Baum supported populism. He good for him. Yes. He said, for me, the book remains a gentle critique of those of us, whether farmer, worker, or politician, scarecrow, tin man, or lion, who search <laughs> out humbug wizards to solve our problems. Hardly the stuff of cross of gold speeches. Cool. That's probably the best thing he wrote. <laughs> yes. So the, Out of everything. <laughs> the origin of this theory, the person who came up with it even was like, ah. 
Yeah. Well, that's that's the politics right there. Yeah. Like we all look for these ridiculous facades to be president and to solve our problems and to put on those green glasses for us. Yeah. And, and to follow them blindly. Um, the humbug wizards. So, th- I mean, his political statement is stronger there than ever. Definitely. You could, you could see how that might be part of it. That's really the only good correlation he made. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Out of all everything. I thought that was more poignant than anything else he said and makes me respect him again. There are connections to be discussed. And I think even Littlefield's initial theory is a cool, like, what if? But the problem I have is when you say that the whole story is built around those connections, as if it's a vehicle for these metaphors, the book's not a parable. It's not an allegory. It's a children's story written in 1900 in a quickly changing world with a lot of imagination. Now I want to tell you why William Jennings Bryan was kind of forgotten. Okay. At least in my opinion. I think it's because he spent his final days, his final days on Earth, as a prosecutor in the Scopes Monkey Trial. He was on the side saying that evolution should not be taught in schools because it disagreed with a fundamentalist view of the Bible. So William Jennings Bryan, he, he wanted to help workers. He was on that side. But he was also very Christian, and that colored a lot of what he did. He said that he was on the side of saving the children of Christian parents from the poisonous influence of an unproven hypothesis. Goodness gracious. So that whole trial, it's worthy of its own episode. There's just a whole lot going on with that. I was just thinking that. <laughs> it, is, it is crazy. Um, but the point here is that that work didn't really do Brian any favors, legacy-wise, mm-hmm. and that people are complicated. Right. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So that theory, that's why I first heard of William Jennings Bryan, but author Peter Shea thinks that he should be remembered for something else, for being among the people who came close to the presidency but never made it. And that's how he's covered in Peter Shea's new book, In the Arena. Okay. So I talk with Peter about some of these folks, including Aaron Burr Mm -hmm. and John C. Calhoun. Cool. So let's take a listen. All right, let's do it. Welcome to the show, Peter. It's really good to have you. 
There are so many books about presidents, but this book, In the Arena, it's about 34 presidential hopefuls, you call them. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to write this book and, and what was the impetus for it? The impetus began several years ago when my colleague Tom Mayday, who lives in Chicago, was passing by the monument to Stephen Douglas, which is in Chicago. Now, the monument's uh, very elevated, very um, very impressive when you look at it. And you don't really see monuments of that scale anymore, and you certainly don't see them for people who at least best remember today as someone who did not manage to become president. So that got his chain of thinking going about, you know, what an interesting topic, that all these people whose lives we don't know about who tried to become president but didn't. He said, so he reached out to me, and we'd done a book project years earlier about um, uh, Chicago, and he said, do you want to do a book about um, presidential candidates who didn't win and and the monuments to them? Very specific. He said, if nothing else, we're pretty certain not to get any competition for the book idea. I said, well, that's a, that's a selling point. So I said, sure, why not? Yeah, it really is beautiful. And it's, I mean, would you, I don't know if it meets the legal definition, uh, if, if it's like champagne has to come from the region. Is it a coffee table book? I, yes, I would say it's a coffee table book. I am very, I'm a, I'm a long fan of coffee table books and indeed of coffee tables. I think there's a lost art to having coffee tables. So yes, I think it's a great coffee table book. It's a big book, um, which is, which I think whenever you have a book of photographs, the book should be big so you can get a good look at the photographs. And I think they did a beautiful job at Trope of laying out the text and images. Um, so I think the book itself is is, a, is just the design as a work of art. Yeah, I would agree. It's literally on our coffee table right now. Good, so good. Um, if there's any question of whether it's a coffee table book, I've answered it. Yes. Um, you called Stephen Douglas an inspirational schemer, uh, both a genuine leader and an unremitting opportunist. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Stephen Douglas and even even Aaron Burr and their personas and that that ambition. And was there something about their leadership style or their personality that makes it more likely for them to, to get that high but not to the top? Both men had a capacity for making enemies. I think that's one thing they had in common. And I think in anyone who runs for president, um, we have to realize there's a great degree of personal ambition at play. And, um, and very little modesty. Um, even Lincoln biographers, even his close associates said that, you know, it's ridiculous to say that he was a modest man. I mean, nobody has the, the nerve to run for president and think they can do the job if they're modest. Um, the question is, can you align your personal ambition with the interests of the country? If that's the case, you can be intensely ambitious and be a great leader. Um, and a great early example, and certainly the model for people both like for both people like Douglas and for Lincoln, would be Henry Clay, who was intensely ambitious, mm. but he was also very shrewd in figuring out approaches that were best for the country. Now Burr is always has been and will remain one of our most fascinating figures um, in our political history, if for no other reason that he was one of that founding generation and who didn't walk away with a halo, even though on paper. Burr should have been one of the most distinguished members of that group. Certainly, he had one of the best pedigrees of any of the founding generation. I mean, his grandfather was Jonathan Edwards. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the associates of Princeton. He was part of America's pre-existing political elite, and he was, as acknowledged even by his opponents, as a man of considerable brilliance. I think in his case, he's kind of like a Benedict Arnold. The the personal ambition overwhelmed the better angels of his nature and led to his downfall. 
Okay. I think, and that's why Burr is so remains a fascinating individual. So much promise, and yet, yeah, you kill one founder and you commit maybe a little treason, <laughs> and it's all people talk about. Seriously, and they don't look at the other Very things. Fair. They don't look at the feminism. No, they don't look at the. Right. Um, they don't look at the uh, the forward thinking um, policies approach. They don't look at the way the amazing way you raise your daughter to have the equal education of a man because you think women, yeah. are, you know, your attitude towards um, uh, slavery and things. Like that. You know, again, Burr was his fascinating contradiction. Um, there were so many, he had qualities that were really admirable, but he was also a genuine rascal. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and that was picked up on um, early on, I think, in his career. Washington makes a remark about Burr. And I think the fact that Washington doesn't become an advocate for Burr early in his career, even though Burr serves in his general sphere, is significant because one of the things that Washington obviously did was really promote the careers of his younger um, officers who we felt would be really good in terms of power after the end of the revolution, as he did with Alexander mm-hmm. Hamilton. He doesn't do that with Burr. He says that Burr has a talent for conspiracy. Um, and I would say, you know, you could say generally, so did Hamilton. But Hamilton was better at at, at concealing it at times. Um, I think uh, you know, Burr and Hamilton really are, are almost twins in some way. That's what, what makes this mm. really a fratricidal act because they really they mirror one another. A little change here, a little change there. It might have been Burr, the one we celebrated, and Hamilton, the one we denounced. But again, at crucial moments in their careers, they diverge in different ways. So I think I think all those founding individuals, Jefferson and Aaron, they all had their demons, but they kept them in check. For the most part, mm. Burke just there were moments when he just couldn't stop himself, and um, you see that in a number. You see the events leading up to the encounter with Hamilton. You see that, of course, in the um, in the controversy afterwards with the um, the conspiracy, um, and then you see at the very end of his life when he marries a wealthy widow and she later tries to divorce him because she realizes he's blown through all her money. You know, yeah, it's it's not the most noble ending. No, he's not. He's not. He's our founding scoundrel. <laughs> and that's saying something when you look at Hamilton. Yeah. Hamilton he read, Hamilton dies. And, and then, of course, when you die in a martyr's death, you get a, you get a, the beatific treatment. Um, had Hamilton lived, you know, we, we might have had a, a different critical view of him. And certainly he was a man who, who had, he was, again, we would say he was a complicated man. Um, Hamilton at least has the benefit of all the work he does in the, in the Federalist Papers as, and helping lay the groundwork of our government. So that's really his legacy and his contribution. Burr doesn't have any equivalent documents like that. Um, right. So, Thinking about like these great figures that you know, have withstood the, the test of time and are, are still big, uh, I guess, pop culture icons right now, you could almost call them. Um, you kind of talk about the opposite between 1830 and 1860 when there's just a series of uninspiring presidents. I think there's... Um, eight different people in there. None of them serve more than one term. A couple of them, I think, are rude enough to die during their term. Um, and you talk about how the first-rate men of that time maybe didn't have a chance to get elected to a nationwide office because they were so regionally popular. And I wonder if you could talk a little more about that and and how that if any of that's still true today or how that's changed. Well, you know. We tend to forget at times that for a long for a long period, America really thought of itself as a collection of regions, individual states. As as you like to say, before the Civil War, it was the United States are, and after the Civil War, it's the United States is. And in an age when you know people didn't move about a lot, 
and you spent a great deal of your time in your, in your native region, it made sense that you would be associated as a, as a regional leader. I mean, compared to Europe, where um, in France or England, you have a comparatively small area to traverse. So you can't, it's much easier to be a national man. You know, in England, you can, you're only a few days away from London if you're not from London. And in France, if you're anybody, you're in, you're in Paris. The United States has this vast continental space and people are going to emerge in those new, in those new areas, you know, which give um, a lot of leeway to, to emerging talent. But the problem is they become very identified with the region and it becomes difficult to get somebody who the whole country can, uh, can, um, come around. I mean, again, famously, Lincoln was a, a compromise candidate because the regional champions kept canceling each other out. And then afterwards, where the party politics really kick in, the, the party really decides that they don't want someone who's too individually potent because that person would be hard to control. It's almost like a corporation where you're moving a management managers up the ladder and then you promote somebody and you put that person forward as, as a candidate. And you'll know that that person will be electable because to a certain degree they're they're inoffensive, and two they will they're not going to do anything radically different from the party's um, ruling councils. And again, from from Lincoln up until Teddy Roosevelt, you have this this collection of uh, you know eminent men, but nobody great, nobody truly great, because the truly great are, have a quality of independence that um, party politics can't can't really. Um, Bear to see, and uh, and the, again, obviously, the first um, really great president we get after Lincoln is is Teddy Roosevelt, and, and we get him by accident. Yeah. And before Roosevelt, you have William Jennings Bryan, who is mm-hmm. um, almost a proto Roosevelt in the sense that he's got this dynamism, he's got this following, but he's too much of a certain region. Um, and we're looking at an age when the cities are becoming very important, and, and Brian is a, is a man of the country. In a sense, he's 50 years behind the times because in an agrarian America, everybody's a Brian. But in the age of the, the rise of the great cities, the New Yorks, the Chicago's, the Boston, San Francisco's, with a concentration of American voters, the Bryans are, are, represent the people who are feeling they're being left behind because America's energy and power is now shifting to the cities. Um, and then you get Teddy Roosevelt, who is a member of the established ruling class and very comfortable with the cities, but also very independent. Yeah, and mentioning Brian, I think he ran unsuccessfully three times, mm-hmm. three I think times. tied with Henry Clay. Yeah. Um, is there a comparison there that you can make beyond that between Clay and Brian? Like what kind of person just doesn't give up on, on seeking that highest office? And what, what are the circumstances that allow them to get in there in the arena every time? Well, I think... The thing that they had in common was that they had the ability to inspire a following. They, they, they both had that inspirational quality to them. I'm not sure that, that Henry Clay um, and uh, William Jennings Bryan would have much to say to one another because in many ways they're very different temperaments. Mm. But um, Lincoln once said that pursuing the presidency is like having a horse with a chin fly. The fly just keeps coming back and back and back. And he, you know, he understood when he was dealing with cabinet members who wanted to become president, he said, if you've never had that ambition, if you don't know what a, what a, how feverish it can make you, particularly the closer you get to national power, the idea that you rise up in eminence but you don't become president almost becomes, I think, for some people, unbearable. So I think um, the multiple attempts of a Clay and the multiple attempts of Brian, in that sense, they power one another. Both of them just got too close to simply give up because they it was just you know they felt that a little bit to the left, a little to the right, and they'll become president. 
Of course, it never worked out that way. But I mean, you can understand the um, the appeal of it. Yeah. It's, when I think about ambitious folks who also were very strong in a region, I think of uh, John C. Calhoun, mm-hmm. who I don't I don't know that he ever did better than like fifth place in an election, but he certainly was in there in the running, putting himself out there. I have to ask the photographs in the book, by the way, the ones by uh, Tom Mayday are, are just fantastic. Um, the the images of these monuments. And then for some of the older presidential hopefuls, um, there are some like portraits and historical documents that are in there. The one that you chose of John C. Calhoun, um, you picked a normal looking picture of him, which takes thought. <laughs> I wonder if, if, because a lot of the later photographs of John C. Calhoun, he looks like a walking nightmare with, with neck hair that can't be explained. <laughs> he looks like the kind of person you'd encounter and if you go to Disney's Haunted Mansion, he's the kind of figure yes. you would you would imagine him popping out of somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. His eyes follow you around the room and try to that's, nullify things. That's and that, yeah. exactly it. Yeah. So seeing Calhoun when he was younger, he realized, wow, he wasn't always that spooky old man. Yeah, and I think maybe because he's early on in the book, that was a good decision not to scare readers away, ease them into the Calhoun nature. Yeah, yeah. Calhoun was once seen as a pragmatist and a, and a, and a national. I mean, he, a great example of someone who, on one sense, remains the same, but also changes radically in other ways. You know, so I mean, he's the, the, the brilliance is there, the talent is there, but his vision of where America should go changes very cons- considerably over time. That's why I think of John C. Calhoun as a good warning that dangerous ideas can come from very intelligent, well-spoken people. Um, it's not just crackpots who are, you know, talking word salad. And the, the fascinating thing, I, which I learned about Calhoun in the Richards book, is that the idea of succession does not begin with him or the South. It begins in New England. It begins mm. with the New Englanders saying, what the heck are we doing tying our economy, which is vibrant with all the shipping and everything, to this these Southern sluggards and whatnot. Everyone, they're dragging us down. If we, it was just us in New York, man, we'd be a powerhouse. So they're thinking about maybe maybe succession in the future. And at some point, the idea dies out in New England as they kind of reconcile themselves to the national. But the seed has been planted in Calhoun. Mm. And it leaves Yale with the idea of, of succession, a possibility. And he starts out his career as a, as a fervent American nationalist and wants to see federal power used to um, improve life throughout the developing United States but then gradually begins to realize the more federal money and power that is expended in the individual states, the more power goes to Washington and away from the local capitals. And he begins to see the dangers of that because, again, he 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 likes the idea of a national government, but he really wants major decisions to be made in a region by the people there. And, again, that's something that a lot of people were sympathetic to at the time, and not just in the South. Yeah, that that makes me think of uh, James Madison championing the strong federal government and the Constitution and um, the Federalist Papers, and then kind of parting ways with Washington and and Hamilton and becoming a champion for states' rights there with Jefferson. Uh, A similar trajectory, slavery part of it. Yeah. The fascinating thing when you think about how central these debates were to the 19th century how the issue wasn't addressed in the original Constitution, maybe because they just they didn't want, they didn't want to think about it or they didn't want to introduce the topic. But the question is, does a state have a right? Is this a contract that's non-breakable, 
or other situations in which a state can decide not to renew its contract with the other states and go off on its own. That to me is always the fascinating thing is that of all the things they, they managed to successfully anticipate, that's the one thing that nobody wants to talk about in the 18th century and by the 19th century, the drumbeat as, as, as the yeah. power of it. So. Um, and something else Calhoun said, um, I mean, obviously he talked about slavery as a positive good, but his logic had to do with this, you know, idea that there are, are different races and naturally one would be on top of the other. There's going to be winners and there's going to be people serving them. And that dichotomy made me think of the book as a whole and how we view the losers of a presidential race, as opposed to, I think you mentioned a, a parliamentary system where, you know, we don't necessarily tell the loser to, to go off in the woods and not come back. When we write off the losing candidate, when we write off the, the party that, that doesn't win, what are we losing about history? What, what do we lose by considering them losers and not worthy of study? We, we ignore the insight that Teddy Roosevelt tried to convey in his speech from which the book's title comes. Um, the, the, the speech was called Citizen, Citizenship in a Republic, Citizen is a Republic. And he said, for republics require um, a much higher degree of participation than other forms of government. And that requires people who are willing to stick their necks out and, and try things, even at the risk of losing. You have to be, you have to have an active body of people engaged in politics. And that means you have to run the risk of losing. And people who try and fail should be celebrated simply because they were among those who actually tried, as opposed to the people who simply sat on the sidelines and did nothing but comment. He said they got in, they got into the arena and they got, you know, they got their hands dirty and they attempted something. And that in itself is a meaningful action and people should be honored for that. And to simply dismiss them as losers is, is inaccurate and unfair. Um, the people who became presidential candidates were because those were people who had a fair degree of success in their life and proved themselves highly capable for the most part. Um, and just because they didn't become president didn't mean they, they didn't make a contribution to the country. You know, many of them made much better contributions in other roles than they might have as presidents. And certainly quite a few of them probably would have been better presidents than the people who defeated them in the campaigns. So there are a lot of things to consider. Yeah, looking back in, in your research, were there many folks who surprised you, who you said, oh man, that they could have been president? I've always, I thought that one candidate, Adley Stevenson, whom so many wanted to be president, I think it's probably better off that he didn't become president because I think there were certain crucial qualities that he was lacking um, that okay. people didn't fully appreciate at the time. But yet at the time, people just were mad for Adlai and they just thought he should be the president. What, what deficits do you think he had that, that might have impacted his presidency? I think, I think he was hesitant about the use of power. And I, he wasn't he wasn't reckless in it, but I think he was the opposite. He was just a little too reserved uh, about power. Um, and I think that um, Stevenson was a charming, intelligent man. And he was saw, seen as the second coming of Franklin Roosevelt because he had many of the same, you know, charming patrician qualities. Mm -hmm. But Gary Wills, in a wonderful um, collection of studies of leadership, pointed out that what made Franklin Roosevelt Franklin Roosevelt was polio. Polio forced um, a talented but fundamentally immature man to really grow up and, and, and go through um, a traumatic experience that, that a crucible that, that made him into a better better man and better mm -hmm. leader. 
And um, I don't think Stevenson had that kind of um, experience in his life. The one experience he did have in his life where he accidentally killed a friend with a, a rifle was, I think, one that probably traumatized him where he was reluctant to, to do anything powerful. And I think, again, that hesitancy, particularly during the Cold War, um, uh, might have been perceived as weakness. I think, I think all, by and large, it was better to have Dwight Eisenhower in the White House during the 50s. And I think in, in, in 1960, when, again, a lot of people were trying to draft Adelaide, um, they finally realized we need someone who has Stevenson-like qualities but doesn't have Stevenson's drawbacks, who actually wants to be president. And that was where John Kennedy came in. Someone called him a Stevenson with balls. You know, hmm. so interesting. What lessons or takeaways do you want people to take from your book, and and what might you hope you, your own kids or, or someone might take from it? Don't be afraid of failing. Be afraid of not trying. And it's not, it's not just good advice for an individual's life, but as we are citizens in a republic, where we have the right to participate and say what we think, don't be afraid to you know step out and and, and fight the good fight. Um, even in, even in the age of social media where there are 10,000 people who are prepared to shut you down if you say something apart from what they think is the correct point of view. Because we need that certain amount of, we need that energy and we need that courage. Otherwise, our culture really becomes um, weakened because we, we need that, we need a certain degree of, what in my youth we would call piss and vinegar, the willingness mm-hmm. to step up and fight um, for an idea. And we certainly need that in leaders. So I would, that, that if I to take away anything, I think it would be that. Nice. People in democracy are supposed to be feisty. We may take the tone up a little bit these days, uh, higher than it needs to be, but the, the impulse to say and to advocate and to argue is, is part of our culture, and we should celebrate it. But with the understanding that at the end of the day, as with gladiators in an arena, once you get out of the arena, you don't necessarily have to conk each other on the head. You can even go out and get a beer. I mean, so, you know, bear that in mind, you know. Yeah, those were the days. I like people with... Yeah, those were the, I like people with strong views, but I like people with strong views who also have a, have a tremendous respect for people who don't agree with them and are willing to, you know, step across the aisle and, and acknowledge difference of opinion and their shared humanity. Um, people who who think that their position is the font of all virtue and the people who disagree with them are a source of all evil. I don't have any use for them. Yeah. So what's uh, what's next for you? Is there something else that you're pursuing uh, historically or another project? Not as yet. After you've done a book project, you want to you want to take a sabbatical. <laughs> I'll probably wait until Tom Mayday calls me on the phone and says, "Guess what? I just saw. I think we should do a book on this." And I'll go, "Sure, why not?" So we'll see. We'll see. That sounds like a plan. Thank you so much, Peter. It was really a pleasure talking to you and uh, hearing about these different candidates and presidential hopefuls and and how they're remembered. Well, thank you. I, I always this is these conversations are a lot of fun for me, and thank you for having me here. And uh, if any of your listeners are interested in the book, it can be found on Amazon, or you can go to trope.com, t-r-o-p-e.com, directly to uh, to to view a book and, and hopefully order it. So, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you. All right. Oh wow, that was fascinating. Yeah, the interview actually took place last year, and I apologize for taking so long I can't believe to that. share it with you. He was so fascinating when he spoke about how Burr and Hamilton were so similar, yeah, and connected, and how only a few little decisions at key moments shifted them into different directions. Yeah, definitely. They just different paths at different times. Yeah, it was just fascinating how Burr 
was set up to be such a success. And then he was the one who didn't walk away with a halo. I liked how he said that. It occurs to me that what Peter Shea was saying about not demonizing the other side, um, I feel like if anything, that's just escalated recently. Like people have gone from verbally dehumanizing folks they disagree with to actively hurting them when they get the chance just because their hate and their fear are being so radicalized. Yeah, Um, that's really poignant. It reminds me of the line from Franklin Roosevelt, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. That's not exactly what he was talking about, but I think that it's a message that people need to hear. Well, and that hate drives terrible things. Yeah, and I think the hate and the fear are tied together. Yeah, Um, I agree. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you. If you like what you heard, spread the word. Share the podcast wherever you can. Consider joining our Patreon family where you get fun bonuses like a handwritten welcome letter and some stickers, as well as full unedited video interviews with Peter Shea and others. As well as strange videos of me opening possum presents. Yes, yes. <laughs> Which that's, we could all do without, best. but it's there no, now. <laughs> that's what the people want. That's what they've asked for. <laughs> In our next episode, we're going to look at a founding friendship that doesn't get enough love. Hmm. The relationship between George Washington and James Madison, which ended with a messy breakup, hmm. that's a great gateway to understanding the political divisions that we're still experiencing today. Oh, cool. So thank you for plotting along with us. Thanks for plotting. You will not remember him.